Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this text. We thank you for Martin Luther King Jr. And we do pray that as we move through this text, difficult text and topic, that you would help us. Uh, Holy Spirit, convict us. Show us things that we've not seen. Convict us where we need convicted. Challenge us where we need challenged. Confirm us where we need confirmed. And, and be a help in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Matthew 5, 43-48. You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So in verse 43, Jesus says, you've heard it was said. That's what he's been saying often. Every new topic he brings up as an illustration of what his disciples should look like, he says, you have heard that it was said. This means that they were commonly hearing this from their teachers, their scribes, their rabbis, and this is what they were hearing. This, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor hate your enemy. You remember when Jesus was asked by one who was trying to justify himself, who's my neighbor? And you remember the story that Jesus told? The story of the Good Samaritan, the one who found a Jew lying on the road bleeding and almost to the point of death, and the only one that stopped to help him and show him some love was a Samaritan, a hated racial outsider, was the one who came to the rescue. And to his hearers, that was the bad guy. Jesus made the racial outsider bad guy the hero of the story. It's awesome. Okay? The hero. And so your neighbor to this hearing of disciples, remember Jesus went up on a mountain, he called out to the crowds, but then he called him to his disciples to himself. So he's speaking to his disciples here. And he says to them, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is nowhere to be found in the scriptures. Okay? Love your neighbor is clearly in the scriptures. In fact, Leviticus 19:18, they would have been very familiar with. Let me read it to you. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, Jewish people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So they would have heard neighbor in the context of Jewishness. The Jewish man or woman, child is my neighbor. Everyone else is my enemy, an outsider, unless they proselyte. Hate your enemy is not in the Bible. You, you, you can't find it. However, it is alluded to. It really is. In fact, Deuteronomy 23, 3-6 alludes to it, or many of the imprecatory psalms. Now, some of us are like, imprecatory psalms? What, what is that? Well, an imprecatory psalms are those psalms that contain curses or prayers for punishment of the psalmist's enemies. To imprecate means to invoke evil upon or a curse. And there are quite a few imprecatory psalms. In fact, Psalm 139 at the end turns imprecatory. Let me read it for you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. 
O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. Wow. I count them my enemies. This is Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Isn't that interesting that that follows what was just previous? Do I not hate those who hate you? I hate them with a complete hatred. Search me and know me, O God. <laughs> see if there's any wicked way in me. And, we, and, we, and it blows our mind sometimes. I don't know if you've ever noticed that in Psalm 139. You read through it, and it's an awesome psalm. You knit me together in my mother's womb. It's that's that psalm. And then you get to the end, and you're like, wait a minute. How did this go that way? Well, David Pallison helps us. And I'm going to read here very quickly from an article that uh, Bob Coughlin wrote, quoting uh, from David Pallison's treatment of the imprecatory psalms. Just two pieces. Who is the evildoer in view here? So who is the one who is hated and who is the enemy? Who is the evildoer in view? When we ask for deliverance, ultimately, Satan is the one that the psalmists are asking to be destroyed. And the image of Satan expressed in evildoers. You hear that? The image of Satan expressed in evildoers. When you read descriptions in Psalm 69, 109, it is the embodiment of evil, the liar, the murderer, the accuser, the killer, the deceiver, the attacker, the mocker, who returns evil for good. Hmm. Number three in this article here, he asks, who is it that prays? Who's the one that prays in these imprecatory psalms? It is the innocent sufferer. The poor, needy, helpless, and victimized who relies on God for protection. Ultimately, Jesus is this sufferer who prays the imprecatory psalms, crying out, save me, help me, deliver me. God is the refuge of his people and shows steadfast love by destroying those who cause terror on the earth, Psalm ten eighteen. The wrath of God is often presented not as something to fear, but as something on which to set your hopes. That was last week's message, if you were here. As the consolation, refuge, and deliverance of God's suffering people. Behold, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. Romans 12, 19. And remember last week we spoke of God's wrath being the way that the cycle of violence can be stopped. How can we not avenge ourselves? How can we not revenge, take revenge on those who have wronged us? Well, we can leave room for the wrath of God, as Romans uh, twelve nineteen tells us to. We can know that God will repay. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And we can count on him to avenge us and to take wrath. And his wrath will be completely just. So the imprecatory psalms ultimately belong to Jesus. And the evildoer is ultimately Satan. So what are we to do with those who oppose us or who aren't our neighbor or who is our enemy? Well, 
Jesus tells us. He says, 44, but I say to you, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But here's what I say, God incarnate. Love your enemies. Got any enemies? You want to smash? Defame, destroy? You want to see them injured, hurt? Do you want to repay them? Do you want to avenge yourself? Do you want to inflict wrath? Or maybe you're praying for God to come down and wrath on them, like James and John and the Samaritans. You want us to call fire from heaven down like Elijah? Jesus says, love your enemies. And what else? Pray for those who persecute you. Really? Pray for those who are treating me ill and unjustly? So that, here's why, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? Well, He makes His Son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You see, God is good to all. Without discrimination, God casts His many blessings on the wicked and the good. So at the time, uh, the righteous Christians... In the, in the time of Nazi Germany, like a Bonhoeffer, was receiving the rain and the sunshine, but so was Hitler. See, God was good to his enemy, even. By common grace is what this doctrine is called. God casts his many gifts, his many blessings to all humanity without them earning it or deserving it. That's grace. He just gives it. Without sun and without rain, what happens to all life, guys? We're done. Sun and rain are essential to all plant life. We survive off all plant life. And you go without water for a little bit, you're done. So what this is saying is that God provides life for even the wicked. He sustains them. He keeps them alive. He blesses them. He blesses his enemies. And so when he's saying that when you do the same, when you bless your enemies... When you do good to those who persecute you and mistreat you and pray for them, you're being like your Father who is in heaven. It's exactly what He does. You see, when we're being remade in the image of God, which all Christians are, that's where you're headed. Predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's your destiny, man and woman, character and quality of Jesus. He is making you God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, into someone like Jesus. Jesus, looking at his enemies who are opposing him and trying to trap him, he loves them with words. Challenging words, yes, but words. The man who wants to justify himself. I've kept all these from my youth, the rich young ruler. And loving him, he said, one thing you lack. Go sell all you have and come and follow me. And the man went away, sad because he had much of the world's goods. But notice, he loved him. And so this is what he said in response. He challenged him. You see, God is so good to his enemies that he was so good to you. You were his enemy. Did you know that? We are all the enemies of God without the mediator, Jesus Christ. You're at war with God and God's at war with you. You want to be your own God. You want to be autonomous. You want to be your own Savior. You want to be your own Lord. And God says, that makes you my enemy. Because your fist is in my face, and yet I'm sustaining your every breath. 
And so what has he done for you? He doesn't smash you into powder or let you melt into a puddle. Instead, he comes as one of you and lives the life that you should have lived and couldn't live and dies the death that you should have died but couldn't die. And then he rises to newness of life. And now he says to anyone and everyone, will you come to me that you may have life? Will you turn from your sin, from your darkness, from what's killing you and destroying you? And will you come to me for forgiveness, for life, for blessing, for me? God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Jesus says, I'll be your brother. I'll be your your big brother. Your father will be my father. And I will give you of my own spirit for power, power to do exactly what I'm now commanding you to do. So Jesus is giving us an impossible command without the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot love your enemies. You will want to avenge yourself. You will want to destroy them, either in reputation or physically. You will want to defame them to other people, or at least in your own thoughts. But Jesus here says, no, you need to be like your Father who is in heaven, and I'll give you the power to do it, the Holy Spirit. Because when you... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You are being like your Father in heaven because that's what he has done. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. Praying for his enemies. They don't know what they're doing. And it's interesting, one of the Roman soldiers confesses he really was the Son of God. And perhaps that was confession unto salvation because he got a new heart. Maybe Jesus' prayer was answered right then and there. But he offers that same offer to any of you today who will come to him. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest, rest for your souls. Peace with God. 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The tax collectors in this day were more than just IRS agents. You probably know this, but they were traitors of the highest degree. They were working for the Roman oppressors. Rome was now in charge politically of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and they were heavily regulated and taxed. And they would hire Jewish men to work for Rome to keep the Jews oppressed. So imagine your own people working for the oppressor collecting money off you to keep you oppressed, to fund the military that's keeping you in check. That's the tax collectors. But not only that, it's worse. The way the tax collectors made their money was they were allowed by the authority of Rome to overcharge you. So they were allowed to cheat you, and there's nothing you could do about it. Oh, what, the tax is 50%? Give me 75. What? Nothing you could do. Snap of the finger, here comes a battalion. You give it up. And so you can imagine how hated these tax collectors were. And you remember Zacchaeus' repentance. He was a tax collector, hated by everyone. Jesus looks at him and calls him out, the enemy. I'm going to your house today. Salvation has come to this house. He says, if I've cheated anyone, I will pay them back. You know, I can't even remember the fold, but it was a ridiculous amount. How much? Fourfold? Fourfold, I'll pay them back. Four times what I took. It's crazy. Not just pay them back, but I'll give them four times what I've cheated. I'm relying on your correctness, brother. Okay. Okay. 
I know it was more than double. It's double-double. Okay. If you greet only your brothers, remember in the context, these would be Jewish people. So if you greet only your fellow Jews, your fellow Israelites, what more are you doing than others? He's saying that's, that's the way everybody is. Everybody loves their own people. Everybody's comfortable around their own ethnic group. That's a general statement. I know not every, because some of you can't stand to be around your uncle. I get it. It's a general statement, okay? But it's fear that keeps us from the other. And we're way more comfortable around people that are ethnically like us. And, and Jesus says, what more are you doing when you greet your brother or good to your brother, when you love your brother, and you're not good, you don't greet, you don't love on others, the other? He says, you're doing the same thing as the tax collectors. Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Gentiles would have been all non-Jews, the Irish, the Scandinavians, the Alaskans, the Caribbeans, all the Gentiles, the nations, the ethnos. Don't, isn't that how the world works is what Jesus is saying? But you, you be different. How do we be different? Well, verse 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now listen, here's the charge, guys. What Jesus is saying is God is perfect in that he loves all people, even his enemies. And you need to be perfect like that. You need to love your enemies and not just love them, you need to pray for them and pray for their good. So, so who's your enemy? In your mind? You need to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to love that person and pray for them, whoever they are, whatever harm they've done to you, however you see them in your head right now. You, the, the charge is now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to pray for them and wish and will their good, not their harm, not their destruction, not that evil would befall them. And when we do that, you see, we're not perfect, but we are being godlike. That's what godly means. You're being godlike. And that's by the power of God himself. You remember Augustine, command what you will and grant what you command. If God commands it, he will supply the power to do it. And when we live like this, listen, the world looks in on us and they're like, this is wild. This is not what I'm used to. If you have read the Jonathan Lehman church membership book, you remember the analogy of little embassies of the kingdom of heaven here on earth, the local church. And when the outside world looks in on this embassy of heaven and we as ambassadors of heaven, this is what we should look like. Ambassadors of Christ look like ones who love their enemies because what did Jesus do? Loved us when we were his enemies. And right now he's loving his enemies by calling anyone and everyone into his kingdom. Come to me, come to me. And he's making his appeal through you and through me as his ambassadors. But when he looks in on us, he should see this. He should see this. He should taste this flavor, the outsider looking in. So what, here's what I'm seeing right now. I'm seeing something beautiful because we all look different in here. We look different in color. We look different in class. We look different in culture. Some of us are, are all about that good country music, and some of us are all about that good hip-hop music. That's a whole other culture. 
But you know what? You guys get together over a meal and it's laughter and it's joy and it's fun. Why? Because Jesus is your unifier, not your culture. Your color or your ethnicity is not the main thing that unifies you. It's Jesus Christ. He's your identity. Your class or your economic status does not unify you. Jesus Christ unifies you. You're in Christ, both of you, the poor and the wealthy. And you have more in common than you think you do. And your capacity, okay? Capacity means your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your skills. Someone who is skillless, not even able to take care of themselves, and someone who is high-ranking CEO, type A, let's get it, seven, eight figures, they're equal in value, guys. Because they're made in the image of God. And it's not how much money we have that determines our value. It's that you're made in the image of God. And if you're a Christian, it's because you're in Christ. And so the world looks at us and values us from all these external things. Culture, class, color, capacity. But we as Christians, we can't be like that, guys. We can't be like the world. We can't be worldly in this way. We need to be ones who represent the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is a mixed bag of everyone. I saw the great and small standing before the throne. And the books were open and the dead were judged according to what was written in the books. Great and small, just everyone's equal at that point. It doesn't matter your ethnic heritage at that point. It doesn't matter how much money you had. It's now you're going to be judged before God and you're going to be judged without um, discrimination. Equal judgment. It's awesome. So how does, how does Martin Luther King Jr. and the, the fight for civil rights fit into this? Well, I, I want to read to you some passages from his letter from a Birmingham jail. Anyone read that? That little book letter that's like a book? It's a really long letter. Uh, here's why. I don't do this to kind of rehash what is the past, but, but just remember, he wrote that in 1963. Like, there's people who are alive now that were alive in 1963. In other words, they can remember what I'm about to read. That wasn't that long ago, guys. Like, to some of us who are children, we say September 11, 2001, and they're like, that's ancient history, because you can't remember it. But for some of you, you remember exactly where you were when you heard. I was in Pizza Hut, working on a booth. I heard it come over the speaker. It's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Okay, listen, when I read this, there are people alive who, who can say, I remember that. It's crazy to me. So Martin Luther King Jr., and, and he's written a lot. He's given a lot of speeches. And by the way, you can go on iTunes and type in his name, and you can get all those speeches. You can get all the books. I mean, it's all available. They're on YouTube. <laughs> They're not far away. So he wrote this letter from a Birmingham jail. He was... Um, Nonviolently protesting segregation, and he was put in prison. Guess why? For parading without a permit. Really? But they wouldn't give him a permit because of what he was parading for. So it was a catch 22. So he said, No, we're not going for this. We're nonviolently parading anyway. And so, mindful of difficulties involved. This is his writing now. He's writing to eight white clergymen from Alabama who said, just wait. 
Just wait. You don't have to have this big display and create this raucous. And he, he responds and says, mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. I find this awesome. We began a series of workshops on non-violence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you willing and able to accept the blows without retaliating? If you're not willing to accept blows without retaliating, you're not marching. Are you able to endure jail? If not, you're not marching. Sprayed with fire hoses, attacked with dogs, you're going to be able to endure that and not retaliate? Because if you can't, you can't march. And that's commendable. To fight for equal rights, like to go get a coffee with white people in the same restaurant, you're willing to endure dogs attacking you without fighting back? That really happened not that long ago. <laughs> it's crazy. And so he writes this. Now, now I read this. This is grievous to me. In fact, this, this, preparing this message in these last couple days has just been like draining on me. I feel like a zombie up here. I'm going to read you this, and it's very grievous. I mean, this is ugly. This is sin on display. This is his letter. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, yet we still creep at horse and buggy pace towards gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging dart of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television. Like, that's sick to me. That, that, that some of my friends in this room could not go to Kennywood with me in 1964. Okay, no, it's not talking about Kennywood. I'm just giving you a Pittsburgh illustration. Like, that's disgusting. And to see tears well up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children. And see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form over her little mental sky. And see her beginning to distort, it beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer to a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do pe white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respect title of Mrs. 
When you are harried, H-A-R-R-I-E-D, day by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you go forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. He's not making an excuse for rioting and breaking windows of stores and burning police cars and attacking people. Nonviolent protest, marching down the street for equality, receiving blows and dogs and screams. There's people alive who can remember that when I read that. Like you remember September 11th. And if we don't think there's some kind of PTSD that exists in the culture over this, we're just blind. In an article entitled, Why Christians Should Support the Rehabilitation for the Charlton Church Shooter, I'm going to read this. Here's where we go as Christian brothers and sisters. Okay? Martin Luther King Jr. did what Jesus said in this text. Loved his enemies. Prayed for those who persecuted him. Didn't retaliate with violence. He didn't seek vengeance. He sought for equality. And you remember his famous, I have a dream. I, I look out at our service and I see that in reality. When the kids run around and play and they have no consciousness of their friends' ethnicity and they're just loving on each other. That's the dream that he was dreaming, and we get to see it. That's something to celebrate, guys. That, that my daughter loves her, this is her words, brown friends. Loves them. Wants them to come over and play. When, when my wife and I sit at our, our good friend's house, and my daughter plays with his brown daughter, in her words, or brown son, and, and the two mothers say, I'd be okay with them getting married. Would you be okay with that? Yeah, I'd be okay with that. And I sit there and hear that, and I smile. And I say, amen. As long as they're Christians, amen. The ones, the ones laughing, you can tell who I'm talking about because they're back there laughing. <laughs> But that was a beautiful moment for me. I didn't even comment on it. I just waited for the sermon when I could say it. And here it is. Okay. But, but see, we're living what MLKJ was dreaming right now, in this moment. So we have something to celebrate. But, but I want to show you, there's massive opposition. And if you turn on the news or you read any blogs or you turn on Facebook, you know that what we have in this room is not what is going on out there. And so you, you, you may have heard or may not have heard that there was a white supremacist named Dylan Storm Roof who went into a Charleston church in South Carolina and 
opened fire killing a bunch of African Americans during a prayer meeting. I'm going to read you the details of that and the response from their family members because it's beautiful. Not beautiful what happened, but this lived out. So this article is entitled, Why Christians Should Support Rehabilitation for the Charleston Church Shooter. Last June, 20, a 21-year-old white supremacist, Dylan Storm Roof, joined a prayer meeting inside Emmanuel AME Church, a historic black church, and then fatally shot nine of the 12 people in attendance. Roof sat through the Wednesday night prayer meeting for nearly an hour before killing six women and three men, including the pastor. When a man in the church pleaded for Roof to stop, the shooter replied, this is disgusting. You rape our women, and you're taking over our country, and you have to go. Characterized by law enforcement officials as unrepentant and unashamed, Roof confessed to the crime, saying he wanted to start a race war. That was his intentions. I want to see a race war happen in America. He almost didn't go through with the killing, though, because he said everyone was so nice to him. Last month, a jury of nine whites and three blacks found Ruth guilty on 33 federal charges related to the shootings. At his sentencing last week, a unanimous jury sentenced him to die, making Ruth the first federal hate crime defendant to be sentenced to death. Roof also faces charges in South Carolina for which he could also receive the death penalty. And then on the briefing on 1-11-2017, uh, Al Mulder said that Dylan Roof was found not only guilty some weeks ago of 33 counts against him, but yesterday he was sentenced to death by that federal jury. 2015, Dylan Roof entered the historic Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and killed nine people gathered for a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Roof intended to start a race war by making the assault, the murderous assault upon this historic black congregation in Charleston. Shortly after his arrest, and when he had confessed to actually carrying out the massacre, Dylan Roof wrote in his jailhouse journal, I would like to make it crystal clear. I do not regret what I did, I am not sorry, and I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I killed. I mean, that's cold. That's total depravity right there. But as a response, so how do you respond to that when that's your mother or grandmother? Do you burn the house down? Do you mob up and go get that fool? Like all the music... I used to love would tell me to do. The Washington Post, June 19th, 2015. I'm just going to quote one, two sentences. The title is, I Forgive You. Relatives of the Charleston Church shooting victims address Dylan Roof. One by one, those who chose to speak at a bond hearing did not turn to anger. Instead, while he remained impassive, they offered him forgiveness and said they were praying for his soul. Even as they described the pain of their losses. That's this passage lived out right there. 
Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus Christ, who could justly and rightfully have smashed and crushed us all, instead prayed for us and was smashed and crushed in our place. So that, listen, we could be, in biblical words, a family. Brothers and sisters united in Christ. So when you look at other Christians, regardless of their differences, whatever it is, do you see brother and sister? Or do you greet only your brother? You see, the reality is, in Christ, we are all brothers and sisters. And that's only because of Jesus. It's not sentimental. It's not politically correct. It's Jesus Christ's gospel. That's what it does. It's the effect of the gospel is reconciliation. The gospel is that God appeased God for us. The result of the gospel is now we are reconciled to God, and as a result, we can now be reconciled to each other. Isn't that good news? And as the world would look in on us, man, may they see that we our family. Please. Let's pray for that power and let's celebrate that reality that Jesus has won for us by his own body being broken and his own blood being shed. So the reason I wanted to interview Eddie was because Eddie is, if you've seen any of his Facebook posts, he's all about this, right? This is Eddie's, this is Eddie's discipline, man. <laughs> What's your, what's your Facebook, Eddie, so people can, uh, can find you on there? Hmm? What's your Facebook? Is it Eddie Jones? That's my name. There you go, Eddie Jones. <laughs> so, so you can listen in on this. We're going we're gonna to be real quick because PJ's back there dying right now. 